Our reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, beginning in verse 32 and extending to verse 66. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Then the Jews complained about him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And the, as the living Father sent me... And I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread of life which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying, who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? 
What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father, my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ. Please be seated. The earliest Christian writing which we possess in the original language is a small book by the name of the Didache. It may not be the earliest book we possess, but the other competitor, uh, it only comes down to us in Latin, and it was clearly written in Greek, and also it's completely taken up into the Didache. So uh, effectively, the earliest writing we have from the earliest of churches is the Didache, and it's from like 120 A.D. To keep that in mind where it sits compared to the New Testament, the book of Revelation is 95, so you're talking like just 25 years later. And the, the Didache is an interesting book. It's a new Christian church that's organized, but they are still kind of nebulous about what it actually means to be a Christian. They know that God has called people together in Christ, but really, what is that? So this brand new church has written a letter to a more established church that has been worshiping for some time, and this more established church is writing back to them and saying, okay, this is what it means to be a Christian, practically. It's a very practical book. The very first part of it walks you through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, basically. It adds just a little bit of material, but it, it goes through the ethical teachings of our Lord and says, this is the way to live. And it, it explains that Christianity is a walk of life. And then the second part of it talks about matters that we would think about as church practice. It talks about uh, who should preach, and it talks about how baptism should be done. And uh, of interest to us to this morning, it talks about what to do and say when you are partaking of the Lord's Supper. In the ninth paragraph of the Didache, this is what we read concerning communion. At the Eucharist, which is a very early title for the Lord's Supper, it means the giving of thanks. At the Eucharist, we offer the Eucharistic prayer in this way. Begin with the chalice. We give thanks to thee, our Father, for the holy vine of thy servant David, which thou hast made known to us through thy servant Jesus. And at that point, the congregation would answer and say, Glory be to thee, world without end. Then, over the particles of bread, we give thanks to thee, our Father, for the life and knowledge thou hast made known to us through thy servant Jesus. Again, the congregation answers, Glory be to thee, world without end. As the broken bread once dispersed over the hills, 
was brought together and became one loaf, so may thy church be brought together from the ends of the earth into thy kingdom. And the congregation will respond, Thine is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever and ever. It's a liturgy, and considering that this is about AD 120, that shows you that the earliest Christian churches worship liturgically, like we do. But that's not really my focus here. My focus is on communion, and in this earliest liturgy that the earliest church is using to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the minister reminds people that the bread on the plate was made of of grains, lots of grains, but they were crushed together to make this bread. It, It becomes one thing out of many things. And so the communion becomes a symbol, among other things, of the unity that God wants for his people. The bread has become one out of many. And so every time we assemble and worship Christ, we are reminded of our unity in Christ. We have become one. That is how the earliest church uh, emphasized communion. I mean, they emphasized other things, but they emphasize this is a symbol of of the unity of the whole church of Jesus Christ. From many hills, many grains were one. As you are aware, that is not exactly how communion functions today. Today, communion, if anything, is one of the major issues in a divided house of Jesus Christ. If you look at what the visible church believes about communion, painting large, uh, you come up with four very distinct understandings of what's happening in the communion table, and they are, as I said, very distinct. There is no putting them together, there's no saying okay, well, you know, if you look at it kind of fuzzy-eyed, maybe they're all true or very aspects of of the truth. Uh, They're very radically distinct. In Romanism, there is the understanding that the elements of the communion table are transformed, transmogrified, transformed into the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ, and that in partaking of the Lord's Supper, you are actually and really eating the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't look or taste like body or blood, but it is. And obviously, the bread and the wine don't start off that way because, you know, you go out and you make it and you buy it and it's just bread. But there has to be a moment where the bread and wine become body and blood. And this is when the minister over the table says the words of the institution. You're you're used to hearing the words of institution. We do them every Lord's Day. In a Romanist church, similar words are used, and usually there's a ringing of a bell at that point. And when the bell is rung, the congregation knows 
that because the priest has infused the table with divine grace, the bread and the wine are now body and blood, and when you partake of them, you will be infusing the grace of God into yourself because you are literally eating and drinking the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, There are biblical passages that say cannibalism is bad, but they kind of get obscured in this doctrine. You actually eat the body, you actually drink the blood, that's what's happening in the heaven of heavenlies, and this is what saves you, because the minister can infuse the table with divine grace, he can give you divine grace in the actual body and blood, and so you receive salvation from him. As you might imagine, this is not exactly uh, the Protestant take on communion. But you would be surprised at the uh, variety of takes Protestants do have. Martin Luther, who we are very positive about, we like Martin, he's, he's a good guy. But Martin, when he thought about the communion table, said, well, It has to be the body and the blood of Christ. You see, both the Romanists and the Lutherans come to the passage that I just read, and they hear Christ say, my body is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed, and they interpret it as that has to mean It is really physical food and really physical drink. That's why Christ is emphasizing. And so we have to be eating his actual body and his actual blood for the word of God to be real. Uh, But, Martin said, it still looks and smells and tastes like bread and wine. And more than that, we are justified by faith alone, which any Lutheran absolutely believes. That is, at the core of a Lutheran's being, they will go to the stake for that. Martin Luther absolutely believed you are justified by faith alone. So if that's true, then only those who have faith in Christ could eat of the body and the blood. So what is happening is... When the minister says the words of initiation over the elements, uh, those who have faith in Christ, for them, it really is the body and the blood, and you really are eating and drinking the blood of Christ, and you still have the issue of cannibalism, but don't go there. Um, You partake of it if you have faith in Christ. And their doctrine is called consubstantiation. Now, if I were a real Lutheran and not just playing one on TV, I would get upset at the title consubstantiation, and I would tell you, no, this is a great paradox that we can't actually define in words. But, you know, in all the words they've used, when you listen to what they say, that is what they're saying. They're saying you eat the body and the blood because Jesus' body is drink indeed, his blood is drink indeed, it has to really be food. But it is only food for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it remains bread and wine. So you have consubstantiation. It is both with, means the title. The average Protestant today, 
uh, follows Eric Sweenly in a doctrine called memorialism. This doctrine says that when the Lord's Supper is, is celebrated, Jesus is no more involved in the table than he is when you open a door or when you have a fence around your yard. Because Jesus said, I am the door. He said, I am the sheep pen. I am the good shepherd. And since it's obvious that God would not have us actually eat physical flesh and blood, because moral law says don't do that, obviously what Jesus is saying here is, uh, this is a, a bare symbol. It is a memorial. We are remembering Christ's death when we come to the table. When we drink of the cup, we kind of think about Christ's sufferings. When we eat the bread, we think about his sufferings. But it is simply a memorial. And after all, he said, do this in remembrance of me, right? That's not really what that means, but that is how Protestants have generally taken it. When, when Christ says, do this in remembrance of me, he is hearkening back to the Passover where you painted the door with blood and it was said that when the angel of death coming with God's wrath on the Egyptians saw the blood, God would remember and he would pass over his people. So the actual biblical meaning of do this in remembrance of me is not, okay, now think about the body and blood in kind of a morbid way and be really sad. It's, this is a symbol that we lift to God sacramentally, saying we are your people, and we're doing it in remembrance of your grace. But, uh, I, mean, I mean, to be kind and to be fair, it's a mistake that could easily be made, and that's been made in Protestant history a lot. And those who are memorialists say it's just a remembrance. It's just an empty sacrament. There's nothing spiritual happening here. Um, Christ's words are heavy, but they're basically just telling you it's a symbol. You are Calvinists, and as you might expect, we are the fourth possible interpretation. For us, when we hear Christ talk about what's happening in the Lord's Supper... We tend to go to Matthew chapter 26 and begin at verse 26 and read this. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. We kind of agree with the memorialists that when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, he is talking about function. He is not talking about he is a door, he is a sheep pen, he is a shepherd. 
just so you're being brought into contact with the body and the blood, but you're not actually eating it because morally that's against God's law. But we don't agree with the memorialists in that we see it as an empty sign. We note two things in this passage, one of which is Christ says this is covenantal. This is for the new covenant, right? So it is clearly whatever a symbol or a sign is in the covenant, well, that's what this table is. We use the term sacrament. Uh, We mean it is a covenantal act that speaks the truth of God's covenant. Uh, Just like all the ceremonies and symbols you read about in Leviticus and such speak to the covenant, this speaks to the covenant, and it's talking about the body and the blood. It's talking about Christ. And God communicates by symbol just as much as he does by word. Uh, Throughout church history, various church fathers have talked about the sacraments as the word of God enacted. And what they mean by that is when you read the physical word of God, you're reading the word of God written. The word of God written is about the word of God in flesh. It's about Jesus Christ who fully is the word of God. But when you enact the ceremonies of God that are connected to the covenant of God, then you are able to see and touch in symbol the word of God enacted. And these three things are not in conflict in any way. The word of God written points to the word of God in flesh, and so does the word of God enacted. Every time we come to the table, we are seeing with our eyes, we are tasting with our lips, the truth of the cross. And um, Jesus says, now, I'm done with this for a little while. But I'm not going to eat it again until I eat it with you in the kingdom of God. If you are a memorialist, what you understand by that phrase is, I will have nothing to do with this table ever again until the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there is some overlap between the communion table and the marriage supper of the Lamb. That great celebration that we are pointed to in heaven when everything is consummated and Christ is celebrating his bride, well, the table kind of points to that. And they say, okay, that's what Jesus is saying. I'm not going to have it again until the kingdom of God is fully come. But the New Testament seems to indicate that with the cross and the open tomb and the ascension, the kingdom of God comes in power on the earth. And so uh, we have said... When Christ says he won't sit at this table again until it is fulfilled, he's talking about his resurrection. He's talking about ruling from the Father's side. And if he is saying, I am going to be at this table in the kingdom of God, then this is a spiritual event that whenever we come into his presence at the table, we're coming into his presence. It's not just an empty symbol. It's not just a symbol. It is the Lord Christ is spiritually but really at the table. And he is inviting us to a symbolic act that is really a statement of his grace. And we really are experiencing it 
as a means of grace, just as if we are hearing the Bible read as we did a moment ago, um, this is a spiritual event and Christ is really there. These are the four views. They cannot be held together. You cannot say, okay, they're all right because everybody wins. That defeats logic. Um, But we must give credit where credit is due. In all four cases, each group turns to the word of God and believes their view to be founded on it. That is as true about the most ardent Romanist as it is about the most fervent Calvinist. A non-hypocritical Romanist really believes that his view of the supper is grounded in the word of God. And if you were to press them on it, they would bring you to the passage we started the sermon with. Did you not hear Christ say, my, my blood, my body, it is real food. If you don't eat me, you don't have life in you. Um, they might take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1, where Paul talks about the ministry and he says, uh, people should re- regard me and Apollos as keepers of the mysteries of God. Uh, the reason why they take you there is because in the Latin Vulgate, mystery is the word sacramentum, and so it came to be viewed as the ministry is holding on to the sacraments. Um, but they would say, we believe in the Bible. And in John chapter 6, Jesus defines the Lord's Supper, and this is my body, this is my blood. How can you deny the Word of God? Well, I don't want to. And I honestly want to give a tip of the hat to those who want to keep the Word. So uh, it requires a response. Is Jesus talking about the Lord's Supper in John chapter 6? Is that what he's talking about? Take a moment and think about that. It's not a rhetorical question. Is that what Christ is talking about? Anybody think yes? In truth, when you begin to really think about it, we're still about a year and a half from the institution of the Lord's Supper. Nobody at this moment has ever heard of communion or the Eucharist because Christ is going to transform the Passover into our sacrament that we know the night before he is betrayed, and that is not now. So Christ is talking about his body and his blood, and he's talking about a coming sacrifice in the future, But nobody would have heard this as the Lord's Supper because nobody knows what it is. And in fact, just to consider this, uh, if, if you know your Bibles and you're familiar with the Gospel of John, who here could turn in the Gospel of John to where we see the Lord's Supper take place in the Gospel? Can anybody just turn there for me? Anybody here, who here has read the passage that describes the Lord's Supper from the Gospel of John? Can I see a show of hands? Is it you don't know or that you do know? See, if you do know, you know that in the Gospel of John, 
you don't have a narrative about the Lord's Supper. You have it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's very significant. But in the Gospel of John, when you get to the night that our Lord is betrayed, John takes up the account after supper. There is no reference to the Lord's Supper narratively. Now, I've been pointing out in John's Gospel that John overtly says, I'm filling in holes. So this is not the absolute slam dunk it could be. I mean, John could tell you, look, you know, we know about the Lord's Supper. That's, you know. But it's very, very significant that in John's Gospel, he doesn't even describe it. So now you've got Christ talking to disciples about his body and blood in a book that if it was the only gospel you possessed, you wouldn't know anything about the Lord's Supper. You would know nothing about it. It is not in this book. So what are we to make of that? Well, I think that we need to give credit where credit is due and say... The Lord's Supper is talking about something because it is a sacrament. The sacraments are the word of God enacted, and if something is a word from God, it's a message from God, God is speaking to you, in this case, in taste and sight and touch. But the Lord's Supper is talking about what our Lord Jesus Christ is right now talking about, But they are both messages about something, and it's not about the communion table. In fact, the communion table itself has been raised to an idolatrous level. A huge amount of the visible church believes that they are saved if they faithfully take from the table. That is famously the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox position But that creeps into the Protestant church a lot. In fact, there is a whole segment of the Reformed church that has caved in and has become no church of Christ because it teaches your salvation comes from you taking the Lord's Supper. It's called Federal Vision, and that's not the only thing it teaches, but it does clearly teach that, and it raises the table up to be your salvation. If you are going to remain In the Lord, you will come week after week and take of this table because that is a works requirement for you to go to heaven. So there is is an idolatry to the table that man is just constantly falling into. The table is a message. It is a statement from God to you, giving a message. Here Jesus is talking about that same message, and he is saying, you need to feed on me. I am the bread, my blood is drink indeed. If you don't feed on me, you have no life in you. The message is about what does it mean to feed on Christ and specifically on his body and on his blood. It can't mean cannibalism. I mean, honestly, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and Lutherans get mad at you when you say you're teaching cannibalism, but honestly, you're saying you're eating the body and the blood of Jesus, and God says that's a moral no-no. You can't eat your neighbor. 
and you can't eat your God. That, that's not what's happening. What does it mean to feed? Well, there is a theme that we have been working on through this passage. The major theme of what Christ is talking about is what? If you were to boil down everything Jesus is saying to his disciples here, how would you define it in one sentence? Any themes stand out to you? The theme is faith, specifically faith in him. As the, as the discussion comes to an end, because it comes to an end in uh, verse 66, beginning at verse 60, listen to Christ's words again as he is effect, effectively bringing it to an end. Uh, Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What if then you should see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Now he's used the word flesh already. You have to eat my flesh. You have to drink my blood. Now he uses the term flesh and says, the flesh profits nothing. So he is obviously not speaking of physically eating pounds of flesh. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore I have said to you that no man can come to me, which we have already seen coming to Christ and believing in Christ are synonymous things. You come to Christ when you believe in Christ. Here at the end of this discussion, he's he's using it synonymously again. Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by by my father. And then they walk off because they don't have faith. They are disciples of Jesus Christ, but they don't have faith. They are visibly in the church, but they are not converted without faith. This has all been about the absolute centrality of whether you have faith in Jesus Christ. And now in a discussion about faith, Jesus begins to talk about his body and his blood, and he says you need to feed on that. Well, what is feeding when it comes to the arena of faith? Well, feeding is a perpetual activity that nourishes, right? It is something that you draw strength from. You even draw enjoyment from it. And it's something that you do at length. Jesus is talking about the focus of our faith, the focus of our thoughts, where our mind should go to feed our faith. He is talking about meditating on who God is, and he is saying you should have your mind and your heart in the meditations of those things locked onto Christ. How much of your day centers around When is it going to be breakfast and when are we going to eat? It's getting to be noon. 
I wonder what Carmen will fix. Evening time is coming. I'm a little peckish. If you really think about how your day works out, you spend a huge amount of your day thinking about food. And then, once you're done thinking about it, you dine on it. So, the amount of time you spend on an average day about food is pretty impressive. Christ says, feed on me. Let your mind and your heart be rooted and fixed on me. And specifically, central to me, because he has oftentimes said, have faith in me. And and that's general. But as the message comes to an end, he says, feed on me on my body and my blood. He is pointing forward to the cross. He is saying, let your heart and mind be fixed upon what God has done for his people. Meditate deeply and strongly and perpetually. Draw your nourishment for your faith from the implications of what it means that the eternal God who is everything and who you are before as a vapor sent God the Son to live as a man and to die for you. Consider the implications of that. Mine it out as you would mine gold. Be diligent to search for it as if you were panning for gold. Let your mind think about what that tells you about God. Let your heart rely upon what that tells you about Christ. God, who is everything, in his eternal purposes, decided to value you, decided to value you, to the point that he would enter into man's existence in Christ, and he would undergo his own wrath, His body and his blood would be crushed for you. He had you in mind. The God who spoke everything into existence and has no needs cared enough about you to exist as you, suffer as you when he has no need to suffer, To die, which is part of the curse, which you deserve and he does not. Meditate on that. Feed on that. Let your heart and your mind so draw strength from that, that your faith is nourished. Faith is a gift of God. It is a supernatural thing, at least if it's saving faith. There's a couple of individuals in the Bible who are said to have a kind of faith that doesn't save them, chief among that is the demons. That's not the faith we're talking about. But if it's saving faith, it's a gift from God, and it's not going to go away, but you who have walked in Christ long enough know the strength of your faith will tend to vary. There will be moments where your faith is strong, and you are walking in the Lord, and you feel the conquering power of Christ all around you. And then there's the average Tuesday when you feel defeated and weak. And then there is the storm that just surrounds you, and you have no idea how to deal with it, and your faith looks weak and tepid in that storm, and you cry out, what will feed my faith? Consider the cross of Christ. 
Martin Luther is very famous for saying, do not look to your own works if you are looking for assurance. Look to the cross. Now, I have brought that up a couple of times because I want to blunt it a little because Martin said, it really doesn't matter what your works are at all. Don't consider that. Consider the cross. And the New Testament, several places, says, you know, you really ought to see if works are growing out of your faith. So Martin's not totally right. But he's not totally wrong either. There will be moments in your Christian walk where honestly, if you are looking for assurance of the love of God, if you are looking for assurance that heaven is your home, if you are looking for assurance that you are right with God, it will not be found in anything of you. It will not be found in your circumstances. It will not be found in how you are working internally. It will not be found in your works because, quite frankly, this is a dark moment. Christ says, feed on my body and my blood. Grab hold of the cross and realize the cross is the grace of God. God crucified Christ for you. God poured out his blood for you. Even in your darkest moment where your faith is atrophying to the point where it looks dead, Christ died for you. Feed on that. Let that be central to your absolute trust. What shall I cling to? Nothing in my hand I bring but to the cross of Christ I cling. That is what Jesus is talking about. And he is also talking about making the cross central. As I said, how much of your day is spent pursuing food, thinking about food, setting up for the next food? If you're a woman, this probably hits even harder because you're probably the one who cooks. How much of your day is centered around eating. You are here for a brief moment. Uh, Life is brief. What is it that should regulate and guide our moving through this brief day? Jesus says, feed on my body and my blood, which makes Christ the central significance of this life. We work that we might eat, Right? I mean, how much of our laboring, how much of our, of our salary goes to the food? Feed on my body, feed on my blood. My body and my blood are drink and meat indeed. They are the real food. You will eat the physical food you labor so much for, and its effects will go away very quickly. You may even have eaten of the manna, that God sent from heaven, and it was a blessing from God, but its effects went away. Feed on Christ. Let the majority of your labor in this life be for more and more experience of him. Let the focus of your life be about enjoying the meal that God provides for you in his grace through Christ. Let your mind be laying hold of this as its goal. Just like, honestly, lunchtime is more of a goal than we want to admit. Let him 
be the focus. Let him be the, 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 what you grab hold of. Let him be all in all. That is what Christ is talking about. And that is what the table is talking about. When you come to the Lord's table, Christ is present, and he bids you come and enjoy a symbol of what he has extended to you. He has extended to you the fellowship of his Father because of the body and the blood of the Son. You have been invited into heaven and its kingdom. You are given faith that will not die, and it will be nourished as you see in the table how much God cares for his people.